Hello everybody and welcome to Grey History, the French Revolution. Today's episode is titled Two Louis and we'll be seeking to blast through 250 years of French history and specifically cover the glorious reign of Louis XIV and the inglorious reign of his despised predecessor, Louis XV. This will wrap up our two status quo episodes and lay the foundations of our revolutionary saga, allowing us to jump into the American Revolutionary War and the enthronement of King Louis XVI next episode. So without further ado, let's begin. I want you to imagine dangerous places to live. If you were drafting clickbait.com's top 10 most dangerous places list, what would make the cut? Libya, Somalia, Afghanistan, Venezuela, Westeros, Tatooine, Mordor, Arrakis, these are some of the places that come to my mind. But a place that certainly doesn't come to my mind when I make that list is France. Yet 400 years ago, France might have made the cut. When Louis XIV was coronated at the age of 11 in 1654, France had spent much of the previous century engulfed in violence. During this time, the kingdom had witnessed the bloody assassination of not one but two kings and had experienced decades of sporadic civil and foreign war. Late 16th century and early 17th century France wasn't a very peaceful place to be, and two factors fueled this turmoil. The first factor was religious disagreements between Protestants and Catholics. Actually, disagreements is a little bit of an understatement. When I say disagreements between French Protestants and Catholics, what I mean to say is that France had experienced religious schism that resulted in civil war. Actually, civil wars, plural. France experienced more civil wars than you could poke a crucifix at. Unfortunately, these civil wars were a bit like a conga line at a wedding. It gets hard to track where one starts and where one ends, but essentially from 1562 through to 1598, religious civil war gripped France for almost four decades. Massacres of non-combatants were not uncommon in this war for the Christian faith, and the war for the soul of Christianity was not restricted to France alone. All over Europe, religious disagreements and religious division, fueled by the Reformation, turned neighbour against neighbour, Knight against peasant, king against subject. The cause? Martin Luther. Not to be confused with Martin Luther King, Martin Luther was a German monk, a monk who harnessed the power of the pen and the relatively new printing press to stand up and critique the Church of Rome for all its corruption, its debauchery and its ideological impurity. Publishing his 95 Theses, Luther unexpectedly triggered a series of events which would split the Catholic Church and Europe right down the middle. I'll skip the details, but Luther's criticism of the Catholic Church fueled the creation of many Protestant variations of Christianity, including Lutheranism, Calvinism, and Anglicanism. France had not escaped the division that split Europe as a result, as demonstrated by almost four decades of civil war. 
Open hostilities started to subside, however, at the end of the 16th century. By 1654, when Louis XIV was proclaimed the King of France, considerable tensions remained between French Catholics and Protestants, but seldomly did these tensions result in significant bloodshed. Religious turmoil, however, wasn't the only factor making France a subpar tourist destination in the late 16th and early 17th centuries. The other major disturbance to the peace before Louis XIV's reign was a long-running power struggle between the nobles and the king. The constitution of France didn't really exist at this point in time, at least not on paper. What constitution France had was more a set of contradictory customs combined with complicated and inconsistent feudal contracts. The result was a lack of clarity over just what powers the king had and what powers the nobility had. To make things more interesting, nobles used the religious turmoil as a cover for their own ambitions, settling scores between themselves and openly flouting the authority of the king with the justification of protecting the Christian faith. Protecting the Christian faith was of course code for slaughtering one's enemies just as Jesus would have wanted. You can imagine a noble family finally getting their neighbour's castle, which they've been eyeing off for decades, using the very convenient excuse that heretics must be purged. In this chaotic environment, noble families were not only settling scores between themselves, but also against the crown, and combined with the ongoing religious wars, this just spelt out a recipe for pain for pretty much everybody. In the years leading up to Louis XIV's coronation, and with his mother acting as regent, sections of the nobility rose in rebellion against the royal family. Those in the plot included Louis's uncle and some princes of the blood. During the conflict which ensued, Louis's own cousin used the cannons of the Bastille against royal forces in 1652, an indication of just how disunited the French nobility were. On the bright side, at least, it wasn't the nobility who had assassinated King Henry III or King Henry IV, the two kings preceding Louis XIII, Louis XIV's father. Instead, it was Catholic fanatics. But considering both of those kings experienced bouts of civil war during their reign, I'm sure at least a few of the French noble families would have loved to have done the deed themselves if the sly priests hadn't beaten them to it. It was in this violent and chaotic environment that Louis XIV ascended to the throne in 1654. Having experienced civil war during his regency, and knowing all too well that two of his last three predecessors had been assassinated, the job description for the young monarch could not have been too welcoming. More welcoming than perhaps a night shift at 7-Eleven, but still, civil war and assassinations don't make for a great job description. But while the future was uncertain for the king, the future was equally uncertain for the French people. After all, as Louis XIV ascended to the throne, the French people had no idea what kind of king they were about to get. The merits of kingship, or monarchy more broadly, have been debated for millennia. One of the key arguments that continually pops up against absolute monarchy is a simple but potent one. What if you get a dud? What if you get a subpar king? What if you get someone who just should not be sitting on the throne? It's a simple yet effective argument. Do you really want to have a system that is so dependent on one individual, especially an individual that didn't win the job based on merit, but rather by the fact that they just happened to be born into the right family at the right time with the right set of genitals? 
If you think about it, the French people were really just going to be lucky or unlucky when it came to who next occupied the throne. Louis XIV could have been a warmonger or a pacifist, an idiot or a genius, a sadistic tyrant or a benevolent ruler. The previous century of misery could continue or it could have come to an end. For the French people, it was just pot luck. And with the women of medieval Europe drinking a hell of a lot of wine during their pregnancies, they were probably starting from behind the eight ball when it came to scoring a good result. In fact, as a quick aside, some people in medieval Europe believed cold water would damage the fetus or even turn it female. So noble women were in fact encouraged to drink copious amounts of wine while pregnant in order to secure healthy male heirs. Explains a few dud kings, doesn't it? Alas, we digress. The sheer luck component of scoring a good monarch means that there was almost a casino element to the whole process for the wider French nation. When a new monarch was crowned, the people of the nation were more or less spinning a giant wheel of fortune, praying for a half-decent outcome. Luckily for the French nation, they debatably rolled a pretty damn good prize when they scored themselves Louis XIV. They debatably got the golden tile on the monarchy wheel of fortune. I suppose it shouldn't be a surprise that Louis XIV, who would become known as the Sun King, was a pretty solid score for the French people. If Louis was a racehorse, he would be the very definition of a pure-bred beast. His grandparents came from ruling families all over Europe. He had origins from the Bourbons of France, to the Medici of Italy, to the Habsburgs of both Spain and Austria. Now, some of you, of course, might point out that having royal blood ain't necessarily a good thing. There are many royal families that become so intermarried that various hereditary problems start to manifest themselves to the detriment of pretty much everyone involved. Russian Revolution, case in point. But in the case of Louis XIV, his noble origins seem to work out just fine. When it comes to being a good king, I'm going to evaluate Louis XIV from a relative perspective. Trying to evaluate him from an absolute perspective would require me to develop some sort of universal scoring metric system which could be applied to all world leaders from all historical eras, and to be frank, that goes against the spirit of grey history. From a relative angle, it's pretty clear why Louis XIV may be remembered as a good king. Before his reign, France had been engulfed in the anarchy of assassinations and civil war. After his reign, France would experience the despised reign of Louis XV, the decapitated reign of Louis XVI, and the terrific reign of revolution and terror. In short, Louis XIV was preceded by two dead kings in chaos, and then was succeeded by two subpar kings and anarchy. The reigns of Louis XIV and his father, Louis XIII, were wedged between two pretty dark and turbulent times for France. Pretty easy to see why he might be considered a bright spot, especially since his 72 years and 110 days on the throne make him one of the longest-serving monarchs ever, even longer than Queen Victoria. But simply living a while and not being a spud is not enough to earn Louis the title of the Sun King. Staying on the throne for decades was not enough to justify the proclamation of a golden age. No, that's not good enough. What was good enough to justify such a title was the legacy of Louis XIV's reign. The man got a lot done. 
France was in many ways a different nation after he died. Importantly, Louis XIV accomplished two substantial achievements during his reign, and both had a direct impact in setting up the necessary circumstances for the French Revolution. The first substantial achievement was that Louis made France a serious global player in geopolitics. The first years of his reign were marked by civil war, in which his cousin used the cannons of the Bastille against royal troops. This period of time is known as the Fronde. After Louis XIV managed not to get thrown off the throne before officially being put on it, he involved France in multiple conflicts, including the War of Devolution, the Dutch War, the Nine Years' War, and the War of Spanish Succession. A long reign provided a long list of opportunities for foreign conflict, and foreign conflict was Louis' catnip. So much conflict occurred that according to historian David Ogg, many contemporaries believed Europe could enjoy neither peace nor security so long as Louis sat on the throne of France. The result of all these conflicts was that France became an incredibly powerful country, one that was at the epicentre of geopolitics. Historian David Ogg summarises as follows. It is the true greatness of Louis XIV that... By his activities, the history of his reign was, in a real sense, the history of Europe, and that Versailles became in policy what Rome had been in religion. Essentially, Og is saying that Versailles was the equivalent of today's Washington, D.C. Versailles, of course, being the grand palace that is the French capital at this time, just a few kilometres from Paris. Through military might, Louis had transformed France from a nation that fought itself into one that fought others, and he had planted France back at the heart of European geopolitics as a result. But it wasn't just war that helped transform France into a powerhouse. In peacetime, Louis XIV used his increasingly unquestioned authority as an absolute monarch to spread French influence, power and culture throughout the world. Historian Martin P. Pollack writes, Louis XIV, compelled to remain at peace for some time, continued the work he had begun of putting his kingdom in order, of fortifying it, of beautifying it. He showed that an absolute monarch, anxious to do good, succeeds without difficulty in everything he may undertake. He had only to command, and success in administration was as rapid as it had been in military conquest. It was truly a marvellous sight to behold, the seaports, formerly deserted and fallen into ruins, now surrounded by structures which were at once their ornament and their defence, teeming with ships and sailors, and already containing nearly 60 large vessels which could be armed for war. New colonists under the protection of the French flag were departing from every port for America, for the East Indies and for the coasts of Africa. Meanwhile in France, under his very eyes, great buildings were employing thousands of men and all the arts that architecture brings in its train, and in the interior of his court and capital, still nobler and more ingenious arts were giving France pleasures and a glory which earlier centuries had not even dreamed of. All of that is considerable effort for a man whose reign commenced with civil war and whose immediate predecessors were, more often than not, assassinated while on the throne. Through wielding both hard and soft power, 
Louis XIV's first key legacy was spreading French influence throughout Europe. With Louis at the helm, France had reclaimed her position as a continental superpower. The second key legacy of Louis XIV's reign was debatably far more important than the first, however. Sure, making France an epicentre of geopolitics was a big deal, but another policy had a profound and instrumental impact on creating the necessary conditions required for the French Revolution as we know it. As I mentioned previously, early in the reign of Louis XIV, an event known as the Fronde occurs. The Fronde was essentially a series of civil wars between rebel nobles and the king. The wars were the latest struggle in a long-running power battle between the monarchy and the nobility. That long-running power struggle can be thematically boiled down into a couple of issues. Primarily, should the monarch and his ministers rule with Palpatine-like unlimited power, or should the nobles be able to act as a counterbalance to royal power? Furthermore, should the king be able to infringe on the prerogatives and the privileges of the nobility, or were these untouchable aristocratic rights? With only traditional customs and not a written constitution to reference, these questions were very much up in the air in old regime France, and had been for some time. The aristocratic rebellions which hit France as Louis XIV took the throne were very much an attempt to prevent these questions being answered in favour of the monarchy. Having crushed a series of revolts, Louis XIV's victories allowed him to solidify a trend that had already been occurring in France for many decades. Louis essentially completed the nobility's transformation from a privileged class with substantial political power to just a privileged class, one that was dependent on the bones thrown to them by the crown. Going forward, it was the king who would govern, exclusively and absolutely. Historian Genito Salvamini, in his book The French Revolution, as translated by I.M. Rawson, sums up what followed nicely. Louis XIV, who wished to destroy all political influence on the part of the nobles, encouraged them to become courtiers, uprooted them from their old chateaus, severed all contact between them and their former subjects, and kept them wholly in his power. In return, he declared their feudal rights imprescriptible, recognised their monopoly of the chase, and revoked the Edict of Nates, dispersing the Protestant bourgeoisie to please the Jesuits, and forcing the clergy to accept the articles of the Galatian Church. He entertained lavishly and created lucrative posts for his protégés, showing an interest in their family affairs, helping them in their financial troubles, and showering favours and pensions upon them. In short, Louis made himself the unquestioned master of France. Interestingly, however, he didn't attempt to take away the privileges of the nobility outright. Such actions would, or at least could have, provoked great conflict, even if the nobles had been weakened by civil war. Instead, Louis XIV sought to neuter the nobility by making them irrelevant. Louis redefined what it meant to be noble. Instead of wielding power on vast estates and being capable of raising troops to challenge the king, Louis made Versailles the only place for a true noble to be. By having them focus on titles, favours, gambling, lavish events, the king essentially declawed his enemies. It became a competition as to who could best serve his majesty. A competition in obedience. Historian Francois Mignet agrees with historian Salvamini and writes about the new place of French nobility in old regime society. 
From Philip Augustus to Louis XI, the object of all their efforts was to preserve their own power. From Louis XI to Louis XIV, to become the ministers of that royalty. The Fronde was the last campaign of the aristocracy. Under Louis XIV, absolute monarchy definitively established itself and dominated without dispute. Cementing the powers of the state around the person of the king was Louis XIV's single greatest impact on the French state. However, this legacy was essentially setting up a trap for future kings. I think in history, there are a few moments that people can point to, and it's clear that at that point in time, the policy being conducted by a government was perceived to be good policy. However, with the benefit of hindsight, and that benefit is significant, the consensus is that that policy was in fact a terrible one, or at least one with significant unintended consequences. And sure, perhaps there's a few wise individuals who can foresee what will result of this good policy at the time, inverted commas around the word good, but generally most people can't. I think the best historical example of this, or at least in recent times, is the Treaty of Versailles. The treaty that ends World War I and essentially creates a post-war world order which enables the necessary conditions in Germany for extremism and eventually Nazism to flourish. Some people sounded the alarm as it was being drafted, but many members of the Allies thought the treaty to be good policy. Louis XIV's policy of taking away power from the nobles by distracting them, rather than actually demoting them, is another such example of a policy which seemed like a good idea at the time, but with the benefit of hindsight might not have been so great. By not removing the power nobles were legally entitled to, Louis was setting up a trap for any future king who proved to be weak-willed or whose presence on the throne created a power vacuum. Future generations of the nobility would be legally entitled to try to claw back their lost powers and prerogatives should the distractions of court life wear off or should the king at the time appear to be incapable of resisting a coordinated noble revolt. Just as future generations of disgruntled Germans helped to fuel World War II after the Treaty of Versailles, future generations of disgruntled, power-hungry nobles helped to fuel the French Revolution. Good policy was perhaps not as good as first thought. Historian Arthur Hassel drifts from the usual how great is Louis XIV line when he makes this specific critique. The faults of the absolutism of Louis XIV are obvious. With regards to the nobles, the policy of the government did not go far enough. It has been truly said by a modern writer that the absolute power of the king was held in check by the innumerable usages and traditions of a highly civilised society. The existence of these traditions may have tended to incline the government to pursue a compromising policy with regards to the nobles. But whatever was the cause, the result of the policy adopted was most disastrous. The whole history of France in the 17th century proves conclusively that the nobles were unfit to be trusted with political power. In overthrowing their political influence, Louis' government had done well, but no attempt was made to destroy their privileges, and these remained to bring upon the nobles and with them the monarchy, revolution and ruin. The greatest mistake to be ascribed by Louis' government was that, in respect to the privileges of the nobles, it pursued an ill-advised and fatal policy. 
had Louis placed himself at the head of a social revolution and reduced the nobles to a condition similar to that enjoyed by the English peerage, the monarchy would probably have been saved and France spared years of revolutionary trouble. Louis XIV had removed the political power of the nobility and centralised the powers of the state around the person of the king. But he had done so only for a time. By not tackling the feudal system which entitled the nobility to political power, by not dismantling the nobility's legal entitlements to various prerogatives, future kings would have to confront a rejuvenated and hostile aristocracy. The same aristocracy which had taken up arms against Louis XIV upon his ascension to the throne. The same aristocracy which had taken up arms against many of the king's predecessors. Historian Arthur Hassel eases up on his critique of Louis XIV though, noting that the Sun King's successors, those future kings who were about to experience that rejuvenated and hostile aristocracy, they could have implemented the necessary changes themselves. In the social and political condition of France, a strong, centralised government was the necessity of the hour, and with the establishment of the unquestioned authority of the king, France enjoyed increased prosperity, while the sphere of her influence in Europe was widely extended. Had Louis destroyed the privileges of the nobles, had he entirely abolished the political functions of the parlements, had he wisely given the local assemblies more power in the matter of taxation, France would have developed in the direction of a constitutional government. He had, however, given France a definite form of government, suitable to the times in which he lived. The establishment of a bureaucracy dependent on an absolutism did wonders for France in the 17th century. It is much to be regretted that Louis's successors did not introduce the modifications required by the existence of such new conditions and new ideas in the 18th century. Their failure to adapt themselves to the exigencies of the time cannot be laid to the charge of the Grand Monarch. So, is it the Sun King's fault that the revolution occurs? No, far from it. His successors could have changed the system. They could have changed the direction of state policy. They could have removed the dominoes from the table. The French Revolution was a long way away. But had he gone further, had Louis XIV subjugated the nobility completely instead of temporarily, French history could look very different. Louis XIV's legacy was that he put France at the centre of European politics, and then he solidified France's transformation to an absolute monarchy. Importantly though, an absolute monarchy which was dependent on the will of the king alone. The power of the aristocracy was temporarily neutralised. It had not been permanently neutered. The nobility's continued entitlement to power and privilege would have significant consequences. In 1715, King Louis XIV finally died. After 72 years on the throne, the sun, king, finally set. After Louis XIV's death, the French people once again found themselves sitting in the casino of life, spinning the monarchy wheel of fortune and praying for a good result. Louis XV was not a good result. It was not that he was mad or insane, or bloodthirsty, or delusional. He would not try to make a horse a minister, or whip the English Channel into submission. No. But according to 
both contemporary and historical accounts, Louis XV was not a grand monarch like his predecessor. Louis XV's government was unpopular, as was the monarch himself. His foreign and domestic policies were greeted with hostility, as were the rumours of his debaucherous lifestyle behind palace doors. This is how historian George Peabody Gooch sums up the reign of Louis XV. Keenly interested, though he was in foreign affairs, Louis XV lacked the courage to stand up to his ministers, and the secret diplomacy to which he resorted was an utter failure. In domestic issues, he pursued the line of least resistance, allowing his country to drift, glaring abuses to continue, deficits to increase, discontent to spread. His best qualities were negative, he was never vindictive, and he had not the slightest desire for military glory. Throughout his life, he suffered from paralysis of the will. It was not the misfortune of France, not merely that he was temporarily unfitted to rule, but that no institutions existed which could share the burden. History supplies no more cogent argument for the superiority of constitutional monarchy than this long and inglorious reign. No modern ruler has been less respected, less loved, less feared, or less mourned. That's got to hurt. Could you imagine having the honour of being the modern ruler who was least respected, least loved, least feared, and least mourned? That old question, would you rather be loved or feared, according to Gooch, that's a pointless question when you're talking about Louis XV, because he would be neither. Gooch shreds the reign of Louis XV, and like historian Arthur Hassel, makes the specific point of criticising his policies which allowed glaring abuses to continue. That is to say, policies which allowed the extravagance of the privileged orders to perpetuate at the expense of the common people. But while Gooch slams Louis XV for allowing the country to drift, historian Charlia Matthews states an opposing view. While not disputing the rising discontent and deficits, Matthews argues that the state didn't drift at all. Instead, the centralisation of power in the hands of the monarch and at the expense of the nobles was carried out even further. Aristocratic privilege may not have been curtailed, but aristocratic power was. Matthews states, The regency of Orléans and the reign of Louis XV though fatal to the morals of the court, nonetheless increased the absolutism of the king. Going on to proclaim that all power now rested with the monarch, Matthew's contrasting views to that of Gucci's highlights one of the key aspects of the reign of Louis XV. The king continued to centralise the state around the person of the king. Absolute monarchy became even more absolute. And nowhere was this more clear than when the nobles finally tried to resist. As Louis XV's reign continued, the days of the nobility blindly embracing the lifestyle of a pampered courtier began to disappear. Louis XV's disinterest in state affairs and the power of his unpopular ministers helped a new generation of nobles remember the good old days where they had had much more power and influence within the French state. Clearly feasting on nostalgic member berries, the nobility remembered that technically they had never been stripped legally of their right to wield that power. Feudalism, after all, was based on contracts, and as historian Arthur Hassel lamented, Louis XIV never annulled those contracts. 
He never actually confiscated noble power as much as he suppressed it temporarily. With an unpopular monarch on the throne, some in the nobility decided the time was ripe for a coordinated effort to reclaim their lost power and prestige. The charge against the crown was led by the Parlements. So, what were the Parlements? The Parlements were a series of courts which acted essentially as the supreme courts in old regime France. There were 13 Parlements throughout France by the time of the Revolution, but the most important one was by far the Paris Parlement. The jurisdiction of the Paris Parlement covered not only Paris and Versailles, but in population terms, more than a third of the entire country, and so the other courts generally followed the lead of Paris. The Parlements were unsurprisingly manned by the nobility, and traditionally had acted as a limited check on absolute royal power. These courts could not initiate or amend laws, but according to custom, the Parlement of Paris was meant to scrutinise and register new laws and edicts before they took effect. The Parlement could make recommendations to the king, yet the ratification of policies could not be withheld indefinitely. That is, until they tried to do just that. With an unpopular monarch on the throne, and as historian Gooch pointed out, no institution ready or waiting to govern alongside that monarch, the Parlements smelt an opportunity, an opportunity to bring themselves back into relevance. The Parlement began to aspire not only to register laws, but to veto them as well. This wasn't exactly a new aspiration, but such an idea hadn't a chance in the centralised state of Louis XIV, especially considering the Parlement had been actively against Louis XIV in the Fronde at the start of his reign. Trying to cast themselves into the role as the defenders of liberty against an unpopular monarch, the Parlements tried to install themselves as a check on the monarch's absolute power. Leveraging public opinion, a relatively new phenomenon at the time, the noble judges wrapped themselves in the clothes of Enlightenment thinking and sought to portray the unpopular king as a despotic tyrant, one which only they could contain. If the goal of the Parlements was to empower themselves as some sort of counterbalance to royal absolutism, well, the nobles failed miserably. The Parlements' decision to continually refuse to ratify or stall many of the king's desired reforms led King Louis XV to take drastic measures. Louis XV suppressed the opposition and essentially exiled the Parlements in 1771. They would not be reinstated until after his death. The noble revolt was a failure. But the noisy resistance of the Parlements left a lasting legacy. A particular genie was let loose out of its bottle. And that genie was the genie of public opinion. In the years of Louis XV's reign, censorship became less and less enforced. Publication had become more and more common, and what resulted was the gradual establishment of public opinion as you or I think of it today. Using the ideas of the Enlightenment, which were challenging the legitimacy of both the church and the king, the Parlements sought to empower themselves at the expense of the monarch. For example, in 1768, the Parlement of Rennes proclaimed that Man is born free, men are originally equal, and these are truths that there is no need to prove. You can understand that such talk was welcomed amongst the members of the Third Estate be it the poor and miserable peasants toiling in the fields, or the ambitious bourgeois merchant who could not ascend the social hierarchy due to the lack of his noble blood, 
Such notions of equality were tantalising. Of course, considering the aristocratic judges were seeking to transfer power from the king upon themselves and not the common people, they were merely playing with fire here. But they wouldn't be burnt. Not yet. Under King Louis XV, although exiled, the Parlements successfully cast themselves into the role of defenders of the people, a role which they would leverage in the coming revolution. More importantly, however, this revolt against the crown had let the public opinion genie out of the bottle. As printing became cheaper and more accessible, as literacy rates rose, as censorship became less scrutinising, this genie would become more and more prominent in the calculations of both the court and the privileged classes. Their inability to control it would be their demise. Before we talk about Louis XV's second key legacy, completely disastrous war, we should take a moment just to touch on those Enlightenment ideas that the Parlement were using to garner public favour. We'll be exploring Enlightenment thinking in greater detail later in the series, but the quick version is this. The Enlightenment was an intellectual and philosophical movement which dominated the Western world during the 1700s. Put simply, Enlightenment thinkers questioned the long-held supremacy of the Catholic Church and European kings. These authorities had already been weakened by a multitude of factors, including the Renaissance, the Scientific Revolution and the Reformation, and the Enlightenment was the next significant movement to fuel scepticism about the supremacy of monarchy and Catholicism. If scepticism describes the Enlightenment's origins in a single word, then reason could be used to describe its objectives. Reason was the primary source of authority and legitimacy, according to the key thinkers of the Age of Enlightenment. It was believed that reason held the power by which humans could finally understand the universe, and thus finally rid humanity of its burdens and flaws. Emphasising reason, the movement came to advocate ideals like liberty, equality, tolerance, fraternity, ministerial accountability, constitutional government, separation of church and state, and the separation of powers within a society. The movement generally advocated that sovereignty laid with the people, not with a divinely appointed king. In other words, the legitimacy of a government rose from the ground. It was not given from the sky. The movement also questioned the authority of the Catholic Church, and at times, religion itself. Understandably, the ideas of the Enlightenment were a direct threat to the outdated, illogical, and traditional laws and customs of old regime France, and indeed, Europe as a whole. It was for this reason that the Parlements were playing with fire when invoking Enlightenment thinking to justify their revolt against the king. Equality, liberty, justice, great buzzwords, sure. But while the government of Louis XV didn't represent Enlightenment thinking, it's not like its new vocal judicial detractors did either. The Parlement and the old regime were both creatures of the backward, traditional feudal Europe that Enlightenment thinkers rallied against. And they were both creatures which did not have long to live. The second key legacy of Louis XV was war. War was one of the reasons why Louis XV was just so unpopular. War, and of course, the naughty, kinky, hedonistic debauchery and depravity which were rumoured to consume his private life at Versailles. Interesting though, Louis XV was no warmonger. His great-grandfather, Louis XIV, certainly was, and Louis XIV had succeeded in using war to make Versailles the geopolitical capital of the European world. He was not always victorious, but his defeats were not too disastrous either. Louis XV's wars had a slightly different outcome. 
His wars, particularly the Seven Years' War, would make France the laughingstock of Europe. From 1756 to 1763, Great Britain and France did battle in what is known as the Seven Years' War, also known as the French and Indian War. They had actually been fighting since 1754, but 1756 was when everyone else joined the party and made it a festival. In many ways, this conflict can be considered one of the first truly global conflicts. The two sides did battle in North America, Africa, India, Asia, and continental Europe. As if that wasn't global enough, the two nations' allies included pretty much every major European power besides the Ottoman Empire. Prussia and Portugal were on the British bandwagon, while Austria, Sweden, Spain and Russia joined the French faction. Now, I know what you must be thinking. From France to go from armed superpower to laughingstock, the British and their allies must have beaten France to a pulp. Well, yes, that is exactly what they did. The result wasn't as bad as the curb-stomping scene in American History X, but it was certainly worse than when Batman had his back snapped in two by Bane in their little sewer fight. France had more allies than the British, but clearly darkness wasn't one of them. Despite this glum imagery, the war wasn't downhill instantaneously for France. Their Austrian allies initially fought well against Prussia, but as time went on and stalemate occurred in Europe, Louis XV found himself with a major problem. Outside the European theatre, France was taking on the great naval power of the day. Britain's fleet was unmatched. In today's age, it's a little difficult to imagine because the American Navy, the American Army, the American Air Force are all kind of the armed forces of our times. But prior to World War II, quite often one superpower had one clear strength. Nations would generally choose between transcontinental navies or continental armies. Why? Well, financially, most countries just couldn't sustain both. Being an island nation dependent on trade and colonies, Britain had a relatively small army, but was the powerhouse of the seas. France, naturally, favoured having a large army, understandable considering its position on the European continent. The problem for France, however, was that when it fought the Seven Years' War, it was fighting in theatres on the other side of the world. Britain's naval superiority allowed it to pick off French colonies one by one, as France failed to ferry supplies and troops with their inferior navy. Unfortunately for the French, their disadvantage only got worse with time. During the conflict, the British either built or captured 69 ships. Combined, the French and their Spanish allies built or captured a total of six. 69 to 6. With numbers like that, you can see why fighting a colonial war on the other side of the world was difficult for the French. The result of this war was more or less France lost all her continental possessions in North America, ceded territories in the Caribbean and Africa, and had her presence in India curtailed significantly. Additionally, Britain gained control of Florida from the Spanish, cementing their control over much of North America. This is how historian Frederick Longman summarises the conflict and its significant ramifications. In the history of the world, the Seven Years' War has yet wider significance. The war which England waged with France in alliance with Frederick left her the absolute mistress of the seas, gave her the French colonies of North America, and founded of the world her empire in India. It decided the question whether North America and India were to be English or French, and here, there is little doubt that the decision was given in way most accordant with the interests of humanity. 
Furthermore, the acquisition of Canada by England freed her own colonists from the dread of a powerful and hostile neighbour, and consequently removed their need for dependence on the English crown. Thus, the way was paved for the formation, a few years later, of the United States of America. And this, again, had a considerable influence on the French Revolution. That summary of the key conflict of Louis XV's reign helps to illustrate why his time on the throne was looked upon with such disgust. He not only suppressed the Parlements, the supposed defenders of the people, but he was in command when Great Britain, France's rival for centuries, conquered most of her new world possessions. Add on top of that the fact that he was known for his mistresses and conducting debaucheries of all manners, and it's easy to see why he's not regarded as the greatest French king to ever live. It's important to note, however, that the king did have his supporters. The Abbe de Viry, writing in response to criticism of Louis's reign at the time, declared, I regard Louis XV's reign as the happiest period of our history. France has never been so rich, nor abounding in so many forms of industry, so well endowed with learned men. Her countryside has never been so well cultivated or so well peopled as in the reign of Louis XV. His armies were not so brilliant, I admit, but neither did they entail the injustice, odiousness or devastation of his predecessor. There was no civil war to shed his citizens' blood, nor did any religious cause put them at the mercy of the executioner for 59 years. No period of the monarchy has given us so long a peace. And in that same period, the three foreign wars did not bring hostile armies within our frontiers. The only way in which the people suffered for them was the lives of some of their soldiers and the money to support the wars. Abbe de Viry was certainly trying to paint a rosy view of Louis XV's reign. So rosy that I cannot help but wonder if Abbe de Viry planned on asking for a promotion sometime soon and needed the approval of the new king. With no mention of the suppression of the Parlements, or the public's outrage and humiliation from the defeat of the Seven Years' War, de Viry focuses almost exclusively on one aspect of Louis XV's kingship. Peace. Well, that peace would not last, and neither would de Viry's favourable view of Louis XV in the memory of the public. Having suppressed the Parlements, having lost France her colonial possessions in the New World, Having earned a reputation for hedonistic debauchery consuming his court, the people of France were keen to see the end of Louis XV. When his grandson, Louis XVI, ascends to the throne, many people saw the new king as an opportunity to rejuvenate both the monarchy and the kingdom. They saw a new hope for a nation which had been humiliated and mismanaged. How misplaced those hopes were. Thank you for listening to Grey History, Episode 2, Two Louis. Next week, we'll be starting to jump into the nuts and bolts of the French Revolution, with the enthronement of King Louis XVI and his little expensive adventure into the American Revolutionary War. Now, before you go, if you've enjoyed today's episode, there is something you can do to help ensure that you enjoy future episodes of Grey History, and that's to hit the subscribe button. So please, do hit subscribe. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China. 
where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.